All right, we got work to do this morning. We are back into our Wanted, Dead or Alive series. Some of you may not remember, but we kicked off this series talking about Saul's selection. And just for a brief remembrance, since it's been a couple weeks, we pointed out how that God selected Saul when the people of Israel said that They wanted a king. God gave them a warning that if you get a king, he's going to take your land. He's going to make your daughters serve him. He's going to make your sons into soldiers. And that means your family is going to die fighting his battle so that his kingdom and his government can be established and be secured. And that in the midst of all that, the people wouldn't relent. And they had to have a king. And so God selected Saul And so Saul was a man who was anointed, he was transformed, and he was secured. And God gave him, according to the text and according to the story, Saul had every reason to succeed. And so the story starts with Saul, with him being selected. But today we're going to read and study about Saul's suicide. Just because a thing starts great doesn't mean that it will end that way. So we've got a bit of reading to do. So if you've got your Bibles today, we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 15. We need to look at two particular stories that help us to get proper context and understanding for who Saul has become as the years have gone by from his initial selection and anointing as king time has gone by, battles have been fought, God has given him mighty men that have been knitted to his heart to fight his battles. And so I'm going to paraphrase a bit of the story for you just for the sake of time because it is quite a bit of reading here. And so I want to pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 15 verses 10 through 35. So here's what I need to let you know, is that God had given Saul very specific orders. Saul, gather the army and go down and fight and attack the Amalekites. And this is a controversial piece of scripture that will save some of the philosophy of it for another day perhaps. But God tells Saul, when you go to fight the Amalekites, I want you to wipe them out. I just started preaching right there. I think, I think a few folk maybe understood what I was getting at there, but he tells them, I want you to wipe them out. Kill the men, kill the women, kill the babies, and kill the animals. Kill them all. I don't want there to be an Amalekite left breathing, and I don't want even their animals to be left breathing. And I can just say this just real quick. When God sets out to deal with a thing, God don't play. Like I said, I I want to, but we're going to save that one for another day. Why did God do this? Many people say, how can a good God say, "Kill kill the babies? The rabbinic tradition teaches that the Amalekites were deeply involved in blood magic, where they would offer sacrifice to their gods, and their request from their gods was to turn them into animals to take on animal form, to, to howl like a wolf or to grow hair like an animal, to take on animal characteristics and traits. And so the ancient rabbis taught that that's why God said kill the animals. is because to God's people, they're going to show up in the Amalekite village and you may not be able to tell what's an animal and what's an Amalekite. So we can see the twistedness and the wickedness of the Amalekite belief system. Not to mention that they were the very first people to attack the nation of Israel when they crossed over the Red Sea from Egypt. And so God says, I'm going to deal with this, Saul. You are my king. That's my army that you are running. And I'm ready to exercise justice against the Amalekites. I've given them generations to repent. I want you to wipe them off the face of the planet. Why? Why does God say kill the babies? That's a tough one. 
Because in God's justice system, which, by the way, is the justice system that rules the world and will forever rule the world, it says that God must visit the pain and punishment of wickedness to the third generation. So here's what that means. That means that today we are, we are paying the price and experiencing the pain of the sin of our granddaddies and our great-granddaddies. But now here's the promise of God. I will visit righteousness to the 1,000th generation. So he's using numbers and metaphor to say there's a price to pay for sin and wickedness. But eventually my blessing and my goodness will outrun and outdo and outlive sin and brokenness and evil. And so many theologians and philosophers and even the rab ancient rabbis believe that God says wipe them out because he wants to spare the future generations from having to pay the price of their fathers. Food for thought. I'll let you take that one home and chew on it. That little principle is like a Slim Jim. Got you on it a little bit. So Saul goes to war with the Amalekites, but he messes up. Saul attacks the Amalekites, and don't get me wrong, there's a slaughter. But he doesn't kill the animals. He keeps the best-looking ones for himself, and he spares the king. And then this is where the story picks up. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me, and he has not performed my commandments." If you've got God in regret, you messed up pretty bad. And this grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. That means that Saul did not wait for the prophet to come to offer customary sacrifice to the Lord. So instead of honoring the Lord, Saul has honored himself. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, he sees Samuel coming. He's got all the spoils of victory around him, and the men are in a good mood because they just won a great battle. And he says, blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Good job, me. But Samuel said, what then is this, this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they, joker, they have brought them down from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. But Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. My Jesus. Any person who's ever walked with the Lord ought to be shaking in their boots right here. And Saul says back, speak on. In other words, let's hear it. Whew. And Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not made head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission, and he told you, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said back to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I've brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed all the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, the sheep, and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. How many know that Saul is pleading his case? But Samuel said, has, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed or to listen 
better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and go out here with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go on his way. And as he turned, Saul grabbed his robe and the robe tore. Oh boy, it's about to get strong. And then Samuel turned and said, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and he has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie or relent for he is not a man that he should relent. In other words, God's not going to change his mind because God is not a man and he don't change his mind once he has made it up. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now. Please go out with me before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring Agag, the king of the Amalekites here to me. And so Agag came to him cautiously. You bet he did. My goodness. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. In other words, you ain't got to kill me now, you sniveling, sneaky, wicked king. You strutted around stealing Israelite babies in the middle of the night, throwing them on your witchcraft bonfires. And now here you are, got the nerve to beg for your life. Can't you see the nature of that king? But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. You better watch out when God sets about to set things right. And then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gabeah. And Samuel went no more to see Saul till the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. But wait, there's more. Let's jump right to the end, just a couple more verses about Saul. Many years go by chasing David through the wilderness, and Saul finds himself with all of his sons in his cabinet, the commander of his army, a man named Abner. They were in a pitched battle against the Philistines. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before them. And they fell slain on Mount Geboa. And the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Malchishua, all of Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul, and the archers hit him. And he was severely wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come through, thrust me through, and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead. He also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. We began talking about Saul's selection, and today we want to talk about Saul's suicide. Let me pray. Lord, I ask that you use me to teach and preach. Lord, make me fast and accurate. Lord, I put my trust in you, in the anointing that rests over your word. Lord, as a congregation, we open our hearts to the truth of the gospel. 
Lord, speak to us. Teach us truth. Teach us your way. Lord, we ask that you use your word to change our hearts forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. What a tragic end for Saul and his sons. The reason why we take time to read about Saul's failure to obey is because it sets the scene and the tone to help us understand what was going on in this man that he had such a magnificent rise to power and yet he had such a tragic end. Imagine, if you will, the horror, the national disdain, the shame that came upon God's nation of Israel when the king and his heir and his warrior sons were all lost in battle against their enemies. A terrible tragedy. Egg on the face at a national scale. And so we would do well to study, to contemplate, and to understand what was going on in Saul. What were his mistakes and what were his missteps so that we don't make the same mistakes. It's also worth us studying because the point of this sermon series is we're about to jump headlong into the story of David. And we want to compare and contrast two kings. What's the difference? Why was one king a failure and one king made such a great and overwhelming success? And isn't it interesting that here on Palm Sunday, when Jesus was celebrated as he rode into Jerusalem, What they call out in the book of Mark is, Hosanna, all hail, son of David. Not son of Saul, son of David. The great honor of David's life was not the battles he won, not the women that he was married to, and they a lot of them. That man, he drinking Gatorade every day. The honor, the legacy of David is that through him and through his seed came the Messiah. Think about that honor and that privilege. And so in studying Saul, it will be easy for us to understand David. And so I want to jump right in and I want to start to begin to tell you about four major mistakes that Saul made to sum up how David himself wrote about Saul, oh, how the mighty have fallen. I need to remind some believers in the room today, not from a place of overbearing confidence and certainly, hopefully, not pride, but I need to remind some believers today that it's one thing to get a crown, it's another thing to keep it. The preaching just started. If you were wondering, that was it right there. Because so many times we cry out, we pray, we say, God, give us, help us, lead us, get me to where you want me. But then some of us, we grow lax and we rest on our haunches that just because I have the crown, it means that now I'm entitled to it. The scripture says that he who started a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Just because you got to where you said you wanted to get to doesn't mean you need to let off the gas. So if he saved you, that means you need to be running after his sanctification. Yes, God, I'm saved, but God keeps saving me. Just because he gave you a wife don't mean you need to just quit loving her. A lot of us, we did good them first few months after we left the altar. We did good the first few years in loving our wives. But we can't let off the gas just because you got the crown don't mean you don't have to do something to keep it. Saul's first major sin, if you're taking notes, was disobedience. And it simply boils down to this. Saul did not do what God asked him to do. So there's two ways that you can sin. There's sins of commission. It's things that you did that you should not have done. When you tell a lie, you did something you shouldn't have done. And then there are sins of omission. It's when you did not do things that you should have done. 
So you can tell a lie by not telling the whole truth. When you go to the courtroom, what do they make you swear? To tell the truth, the whole truth, so help me God. Now that's a great statement if we just get people to do it. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be just grand, wouldn't it? So his disobedience was that he did not do the things that he should have done. Saul did kill lots of Amalekites, but he did not complete his mission. Right there is a word of warning for many believers. Because the scripture teaches us that on judgment day, many people will come to Jesus and say, look at all that I did for you. I healed people in your name and we cast out demons in your name. Look at all the things that we did in your name. And Jesus will say, be gone from me. I never knew you. You can do some things well, but don't forget the most important things. If you're going to obey God, make sure you understand clearly and that you are thorough. You must complete your assignment. You can't get to heaven and be rewarded for starting good. So we're not rewarded for how we start. We're rewarded for how we finish. Jesus' ministry started great. But why are we celebrating these next two weeks? Because of how he finished his ministry. It came down, the pressure was high, so much so he's sweating blood. But he didn't back up. He didn't run away. And when he even said, Father, let this cup pass from me. God, if there's any other way we can do this, I want to do that. Nevertheless, think about the courage and the strength. My goodness, I want to tremble thinking about it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Because men can be bad kings, men can be good kings, but there's only one man who was a perfect king. That when the wolves come, he did not run. He saw Jesus, saw his mission through all the way to the end. He literally said, and it is finished. And so here is some of the danger of disobedience. Is that if God tells you to do a thing, you better see it through. And we have no excuse today because we have access to power, to life, to grace, and to strength, unlike in the days of the Old Testament. The promise of Scripture for us when it comes to obedience is, having done all to stand, stand. The only way you lose in God's kingdom is when you quit. We'll say more about that in just, a moment, in just a moment. Saul was anointed to be king. Think about that. That's amazing. But I want to say this about disobedience. That disobedience is an anointing killer. Remember, the definition of, of anointing is God's ability to do God's work. God won't help you to disobey. So some of us, we start doing a thing and we wonder, where did my grace go? Where did my authority go? Where did, where did the power, where did the life of God that was on me, where did that go? Start looking to see, did we disobey somewhere? And then Saul starts to reveal his heart. When Samuel confronts him on his disobedience, Saul has the nerve to be annoyed and to try to argue with Samuel when God didn't respond the way that he wanted. Disobedience is fruit that grows on a tree. And so I wonder, how do you respond to conviction in your own heart? Do you tell that little whispering voice in your heart that said, don't do that. Go this way, don't go that way. Or when you get into the argument, the voice in your heart says, go repent, you shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have said that this way. When someone says something about you, you're just like me. Your flesh gets tangled and you, what do we want to do? We want to defend ourselves. The scripture says that when they accused Jesus at trial, he was silent. Whew. I wonder how do you do when the voice of the Lord comes up in your heart? Do you listen or do you get annoyed when God wants to set the path straight in your life? I wonder, are we going our own way today? 
Are you doing things how you want to do them? Or are you listening to the voice of the Lord to say, Lord, I want to do what you want, how you want? I want to say this about that. When you get to heaven, you don't get rewarded for what you did in your own ability. Because God doesn't get glory for what you're capable of doing. We get rewarded when we get to heaven when we do what He wants, how He wants, with His ability. Because then He gets the glory. I'm helping somebody this morning. You've been struggling and striving and trying to prove. And what you don't know is you might be trying to do the right thing the wrong way. And you're living in disobedience. And then you get annoyed when someone shows up to let you know this is not the way for you to do this. The second major mistake that Saul made was arrogance. Arrogance. And so when Samuel comes and brings correction, Saul, I believe, he picked up on what Samuel was saying. In other words, you think you've done right, old boy, but you ain't. Yes, Samuel was from the holler, okay? From the holler equals holy. It's helping y'all out there. He says, you think you've been doing good, but you ain't. And what does Saul say? Say on. Let's hear it, big man. What did God tell you last night? Can't you see and hear the arrogance in his response to God's prophet? Arrogance is the expression of pride. Pride is a tree, and arrogance is one of its fruits. And so what does Samuel say to Saul? Listen here, old boy. You forgot about when you were little. Even in your own sight, even you knew, Saul, that you were the lowest man on the totem pole. You knew that you were the lowest man in all of Israel. Matter of fact, when I went to anoint you, Saul, God had to tell me where you was hiding. You was hiding over in the baggage. You were so afraid, you wouldn't even come out in front of the nation until God had to come and get you. And now you want to strut around here telling God about what a great job you've done. Just because you get a crown, don't mean you can keep it. Let me tell you what will cause you to lose your crown right fast and in a hurry. Pride and arrogance. Because the scripture says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Here's the danger of pride is it will cause you to forget. Our founding pastor always said, when it's quiet, that means it's good hunting. There's some people in this room, you need to hear me today. You have forgotten. You have forgotten who God has been to you. You have forgotten who you were and where you were hiding when he come and got you. You might have money in your bank account, but you have forgotten when your whole life revolved around a pill bottle. You might, be, you might be in a covenant marriage now, but you have forgotten how lonely you were. And you was crying out, God, bring me somebody. If you just bring them to me, God, I'll love them and I'll cherish them. And now here you are five, five years down the road and you're cursing the thing that you asked God to give you. There's some of us in here, we're mad at our boss, we're mad at our manager, we're mad at the CEO, and you forgot how it was when you didn't have no job. And you were saying, God, I'll work. You were showing up early and you were staying late saying, God, I'm so grateful to have a job. God, thank you for meeting my needs and helping me pay my light bill. And now you've got a house and you've got a car and you've got a smartphone and you're mad that the boss asked you to come in and do overtime. It's called pride and it's costing you the power that comes with your crown. There's some folk in here that we're raising up our kids. Mine are getting to that age now where they, they talk. When they're this high and they're in onesies, oh, we love them. Ooh. And now they got a mouth on them. They'll say, well, Dad, you said. And you'll be like, this kid, I'll tell you what. How many of you know what I'm talking about? A girl, I brought you in this world. I don't even have to finish it. But how many of us remember when mama was pregnant? 
I'm going to speak for the husbands for just a minute. I saw mama pregnant, and I knew I ain't got no control over this. There is nothing I can do to help get that baby into this world. I was praying every day, God, keep my wife healthy. God, keep my baby healthy. God was interceding. I was rebuking the enemy. I was playing worship music. I was on the warpath. I got to get help get this baby into the world. The Bible says that children are a gift from God. And how many of us, when they're little, and then they get a little bit older, and we're like, you just like your daddy, <laughs> cursing them babies, because you forgot how you felt when you first held that baby, and you looked, and you said, that's a miracle from heaven. That's good preaching right there. I want to say this about this church, this campus. Many of us are new here, and you know, this is a great privilege, but this church has been around for a minute. This thing was born in fire and passion, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You can't become bitter when now it's our turn to pay for it. Because we have to remember, he who started a good work is faithful to complete it. I'm not going to curse what God has blessed. I'm not going to ignore the gifts that God has given me into my life. If we have been guilty of arrogance, run, run the other direction. Run back to pride and to humility and to gratitude. And if you struggle, practice remembering who you were and where you were when he found you. I could spend all day right there. The third sin the third major mistake that Saul commits is rebellion. Rebellion. Rebellion is a conscious decision to go against God's order, His way, to go against His will, or to go against His word or His commands. Some things the Bible is real clear about. And when you go against that, you're in rebellion. I'm on the warpath today. I come looking for scouts today. So there's a scripture in the Bible that says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So if you're a believer and our weekends are getting hammered with our buddies, you're going against God's ways. Because that, you, listen, don't argue with me, you're going to lose. The scripture is clear. Don't be getting drunk. I know they some, they some honest saints in here will say drunkenness always creates problems at some point or another. Now, don't look around if this is you right here, but there's been a few of us. We woke up for our drunkenness looking around saying, I don't even know, remember what the problem was last night, but I feel like there was one. <laughs> Why? We're in rebellion against God's ways, His Word. But Samuel points out something very specific here. He says rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. So what was Saul's rebellion? There's the, there's the first layer of rebellion where he just did not do what God told him to do. But then what does Saul want? He says, go out here with me in front of the people in worship. What's he want when he's saying that? I know God's rejected me, but go out here with me in front of the people and let's make like everything's okay. Because Saul didn't care that God wasn't with him anymore. He just cared that people thought God wasn't with him anymore. Oh, I'm on, I'm on the scent this morning. There's some people, you don't care whether or not God's with you. You just care if people think God's with you. That's why you hadn't prayed all week, but you will go on social media and write up the most holier-than-thou post in the world, and you'll hit enter. So, you, know, you know that sassy enter? Bing! You sent that one with some attitude. Do you know what that is? Listen to me. That's manipulation. Manipulation and witchcraft are the same thing. When you go to a witch, what do you want? Give me what I want my way. Witchcraft is the act of trying to manipulate or override somebody else's will. If God won't override your will, what makes you think that you have the right to try to override anybody else's will? 
Oh, I'm helping some people today. Can I say something? Sometimes the reason why our marriages don't bear any fruit is because we're trying to use witchcraft on each other to get what we want out of each other. So rather than humble yourself and try to meet the needs of your wife, you try to dominate her, shock her, fear her, or silence her into making her do what you want. It's called witchcraft. Oh, that feels good right there. There's some wives in here. The reason why a husband is cold and shut down is because that witchcraft ain't working. You're using the silent treatment and the cold shoulder and sharp words to try to goad him and prod him to get him to give you what you want instead of humbling yourself and saying, baby, this is what I need from you. I'm hurting. Because you want what you want your way. It's called witchcraft. And there's proof positive because if you fast forward the tape from this day, Saul finds himself seeking out an actual witch to conjure up Samuel from the dead. I need to let some people know today. Oh, I'm going for it. I feel it. There's people in government that are manipulators and liars. And they're trying to use witchcraft to lead, manipulate, and control people instead of using truth. I don't know about you, but I pray every day, God, give me a scent or a sense of when I hear lies and manipulation and deceit so that I know the truth from what's false. And I won't, I won't give over my heart to them that's trying to use witchcraft to control nations. There's some of our children, that's why we can't let them manipulate us into not going to church because they don't feel good that day. A child is a child. They're going to do what children do. They're broken. They're not mature yet. That's why you are in their life as a parent. That's why you look back at them and say, I don't care how much hair you got under your armpit, young man. You get your hind end in the car, and you better put your seatbelt on because we're driving fast to get to the house of God because I'm not going to be manipulated. I'm preaching so good right now. I told you, I come looking for some scalps today. Mama and daddy is not staying home from the house of God because you don't feel like it today. And I don't care that you're not mature enough yet to understand just because you think it's lame or boring or they sing that old song that they sang when mom and daddy was young. Listen, young man, you need to learn that old song because that song kept me and your mama when we didn't have no money in our pocket. And that song kept us when we didn't have a job. And that song kept us when we were bound in sin. I'm not going to be manipulated by what you think is cool or hip or trendy. You get your tail in the car. We're going to the house house of the Lord. Oh, Lord, we just swimming out in the deep end today, aren't we? My goodness. Can I say something? I was like any other young man. I wanted to stay home and play my Nintendo 64. But now that I'm grown with a wife and two children and this responsibility, I would kiss the feet of my father for putting my butt in the car, driving me 90 miles from Hiawassee to Carnesville, Georgia, the middle of chicken farm nowhere, and putting me on the seat 90 miles to put me in a church that would love me and teach me the word of God. I would kiss his feet. Thank you, Father and Mother, for taking me to the house of the Lord and raising me in the house of the Lord. It has saved my life time and again. If you feel convicted of rebellion, the fastest and best thing you can do is repent. The fourth and final thing, if my band will come quickly, Saul was in denial denial disobedience arrogance rebellion and denial what is his excuse he says yeah 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 I know I didn't kill all the stuff I supposed to kill I know I messed it up but it was the men it was the men who kept the stuff and you can see clearly that he's given in to the fear of man. Because he lets them in, take the stuff, and then he wants to appease and be lifted up in the eyes of men. The men told me to do it. Blame shifting is the practice of denial. I'm going to say that again. 
Blame shifting is the practice of denial. If you have denial in your heart, you will practice blame shifting. I'm going to need some married folk. Help me testify a little bit. How many times have you been in an argument with sweetie? And they say, well, you said one, two, three, four. And then we go, well, you said one, two, three, four, five. And you sassy with it. You tell how denial is working when the head starts bobbing. Let me, who do you think you are talking to? Denial is at work. The lie of denial says, I am not capable of doing anything wrong. Adam and Eve sinned and they messed up the best game in town. God comes down. He's got to come down here and deal with like, man, y'all ain't been at this long and y'all messed it up. First thing. So he starts with Adam, the one who was responsible. He says, Adam, what are you doing with these fig leaves on hiding in the bushes? And Adam said, it's that woman that you give me. Eve, why are y'all wearing these fig leaves hiding in the bushes? Well, it's the snake. Snake, why are you down here messing up my creation? And the snake looked down the road and ain't nobody else to point at. He said, that was me. I did it. I'm, I'm the evil one. I got you. It was me. The very first thing that shows up in sin nature is shame and denial. If you're king, you can't hide behind the men told me to. God gave you that crown. I'm about to say something really powerful. God gave you that crown not so the men could tell you what to do, but so you could tell the men what to do. You just take that statement and go watch some Fox News and then call me next week and see how frustrated you get. Can I say something? There's some men of the home and some mamas of the home. You've laid down your crown to do what people wanted you to do, to do what society told you to do, to follow the narrative, to repeat the thing that you like to hear in your echo chamber. You have laid down the crown of Christ and you've picked up the approval of men. And the proof is in the denial. It's wicked when a person in authority hides behind the people. I'm going to say that again. It's wicked when a person in authority hides behind the people. People who live and operate in denial cannot be trusted because if you'll lie to yourself, you for sure going to lie to me. A real man, a real leader, and a real king would have taken responsibility. Can I say something about the world that we live in? The people of Christ, God's people, are people that we always take responsibility. And it starts with me. I have to take responsibility for Jordan. No one else can do that for me. You can't do it for me. There are some things I can't take responsibility for for you. And we also take responsibility for our world around us. Did you know how God exercises justice in the world is when people of purity and integrity and righteousness, they stand up in the midst of dysfunction. And they don't condemn the world. They take responsibility for it. Here's what I'm saying. You become an instrument of justice, not by pointing your finger and shouting. You become an instrument of God's justice when you look at the problem and you see it for what it is and you say, God, use me to fix that. Not condemn it 
but show me how to love it. What did Jesus himself say? I didn't come to the world to condemn it. I came to save it. I need to say something to some folks today. You need to take some responsibility for your life. You need to take some responsibility for your own soul, for your marriage, for your business. If you want to be a business leader, you can't always give in to the narrative. You can't give in to an agenda. You can't give in to the demands of what the employees think is best because you're the boss. That's in one hand and in the other hand, in a multitude of counsel, there is wisdom. How do I know that somebody can be trusted is when they can be honest with their self. I need to say something to some believers today. Jesus didn't die on the cross to to prop up your delusion. If you come to church, we'll just say, we'll pick a number. You come six weeks in a row and you don't ever feel convicted, you're bringing in an attitude and a spirit of denial. If you've gone to church for 20 years and you've not changed, you're living in denial. If you choose to live in denial, then you rob the cross of its power. And we as a church of, I believe, a church that lives in end times and the ending of seasons and the ending of ages, we would do well to live in a healthy fear and trembling that God don't let us become the church that has a form of godliness and no power. You can't have God's power and live in denial. It's a great mystery to me. Why didn't Saul repent? All Saul would have had to done is say, Samuel, you're right. I hear you. I failed. I was wrong. I became afraid. I was insecure. Show me. Help me hear the word of the Lord. What can I do? to repent before God I'll kill Agag right here myself there's a little principle right here that what government doesn't deal with God's prophets will have to deal with what you won't deal with somebody else going to have to if you don't set the course of your family God will have to raise up somebody down the line to help set the course right If you don't set the course in your business, God will have to raise somebody else up. With these few exceptions, he did right. Tall, handsome, good-looking. He had command presence. He was influential. People liked him. His sons were mighty men. His sons were loyal to him. They literally fought to the death with him in battle. Saul checks a lot of boxes. But Saul's biggest sin is that he wouldn't repent. David, he was a mess. This dude, he never saw a battle he didn't want to fight. And he never saw a woman he didn't want to lay with. Can I help some real folk in the church today? When David was on his deathbed, they said, they looking through the door and they said, we, he's being real still. Maybe he's dead. How do, but we don't want to. If we go in there and scare him, he might die, and then you killed the king. So how do we figure out whether or not he's dead? And somebody who knew him really well in the back said, get a young virgin that's real pretty and send her in there with him. And they, they said, well, who are you thinking? Uh, it's so awkward, right? Like you just imagine some of these things. Like, well, who are you thinking? So they go get her, and they said, go in there and lay with him. Now, imagine being her, and you're like, he's either dead, or he ain't dead, he's almost dead. And she goes and gets in the bed with him, and David didn't move, and they went, yeah, he dead, he gone. This dude, he running around after dark, y'all. He's a mess. His family was a mess. He got all these marriages. He's murdering. He's covering it up. But when Nathan the prophet confronted David and said, David, you've been sinning, David repented. You can get a crown, but here's how you keep it. Hear me. Repentance. Perfection is an idol. 
you will never be perfect. I will never be perfect. And if you think you are, you would do well to repent. How come one man lost his crown and another man kept it? Not because of what a great job they did. It's because one man, he would repent before God and he didn't care who was watching. You couldn't beat David at repenting. There's not one psalm written by Saul about repenting. But what did David say? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There's some folk in this room today, it's been a minute since you've prayed that. It's been a minute since you've brought your heart to the altar of God and said, God, I may not even be living in gross sin, but God, I want you to wash me clean. Keep me humble, God. Help me to remember, God. Don't let me forget, God, how good you've been to me. God, create in me a clean heart. I wonder if you'll stand on your feet with me. I want my prayer teams to come. There's some people this week, we're going into the Easter season. We're going into the cornerstone Sunday of our faith. And I felt compelled in my heart to give people room today to make some things right. If you're listening to me and you say, I want my heart to be clean. I want to be whole. But you're afraid that people will think you're prideful and arrogant. People think you're rebellious. That's the live pride whispering in your ear. This altar is a holy altar. It's where we come for God to refresh, restore, and renew us. I'm not asking you to do something that I haven't already done myself today. I was in here before we opened the doors. The worship team was here practicing and I was right there saying, God, create in me a clean heart. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you'll just pray along with me and open your hearts to receive. Lord, I pray that you move on each heart today and that, Lord, you will draw us close to you. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to touch our hearts, to cleanse our hearts, and to convict our hearts today. Lord, we consecrate this altar and its time unto you. It's a place of repentance and restoration and renewal. Lord, our heart cry here at the gate is not just that we get the crown, but that, God, you help us to keep what it is that you've given us. We pray.